This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This episode is brought to you by craftbeer.com home of the most powerful brewery locator in the universe. Whether you're traveling in a new city or planning your next beercation, head to craftbeer.com and explore the wide world of American craft beer. Want to support small and independent breweries? Look for the independent craft brewer seal when you search. Hi, everybody. It's John Hall, the senior editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and I'm in a busy hotel lobby because judging just got finished at the first round of judging at the Great American Beer Festival. And this might be airing a little bit after GABF, but uh, you can hear the excitement and sort of the relief in so many of the judges' voices uh, in our background. And my guest who's sitting across from me today is Fal Allen, who is a judge here at GABF, but more importantly is the brewmaster at Anderson Valley Brewing Company in California and the author of the new book, uh, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Fal, thanks for being here, first of all. Well, thanks for having me. Why in 2018 is this the <laughs> right time to write a book on Goza? Well, certainly it is the right time to write the book on Goza because... Goza hasn't been this popular since uh, in 1908, uh, probably, uh, the last time it was this popular. Goza is a strange beer, and it's strange in a lot of ways. It's, one of the ways it's strange is it may be the oldest known beer style in the world. Um, it's at least 800 uh, years old, and probably a little bit older than that, maybe even 1,000 years old. And 1,000 years ago, uh, there were really only kind of two kinds of beers. There were brown beers that are high in alcoholic strength and made with gruet and there were white beers vice beers yeah which you know means basically white <laughs> and the difference was that uh, the brown beers were a lot more alcoholic and that's kind of what gave them their preservative quality. Okay. And the white beers were usually made of wheat, although not always. Um, and they didn't have a whole lot of alcohol. They Neither of those beers had any hops in them. So the, they became sour quickly. They were often drunk quite young. And they became sour pretty quick afterwards, if not immediately. Um, and so every beer style that has come over the last thousand years... Uh, has mostly died out or, you know, come come up since then. Uh, lagers didn't exist. Porters, stouts didn't exist. Uh, they probably came out of that brown beer family. Uh, but any modern style of beer that we have uh, hasn't been around 800 years. Right. And Goza is one of the few of them. So one of the things that makes Goza cool is the history of Goza is really the history of brewing. And What do you mean by that? <coughs> well, if you think about it, 800 years ago. We know there was Goza 800 years I'm, ago. I wasn't around, but yeah. Yeah, I wasn't either. I'm old, but not that old. <laughs> uh, I feel that way some mornings. Capazian might have been here, but yeah. it's. Uh, I don't even think he's that old. Uh, but 800 years ago, brewers didn't take notes because nobody wrote. There was no paper. There was no pen. There was no pencils. Recipes were handed down and memorized. 
all of the vessels used in brewing, except for the kettle, were made of wood. Uh, loudering was done through straw or sticks. Uh, they didn't know that ye what yeast was or what action it had. Nobody used hops. There were no thermometers, no hydrometers, no yeah. pH meters. Everything was done really by the seat of your pants. So everything was fired with wood or coke or coal. Mm -hmm. uh, so things were smoky. Whether this beer was smoky or not, it's hard to say. But definitely everything else was. Your clothes were, you were... But you get the, the, the early versions, there's, there's probably a, a, a good bet that there was a little bit of a smoke content to it. Yeah, possibly. Um, Randy Mosier is your guy to talk to about that. He, he, uh, he and I have had lengthy discussions about that. Yeah. If he um, returns my calls, I'll ask him. Yeah, okay. So. I talked to Randy today a little bit about it. He's also judging here. Yeah. And, you know, he said that um, there are two things that, that we don't, some people don't even know about. One of them is Luft malt. Luft malt is an air-dried malt, so there was no kilning at all. And every maltster that I talked to in researching the book, when I came across this term, Luft malt, had no idea what I was talking about, even the Germans. Really? Yeah, they were like, well, I don't know what that is. And I talked to a guy from the Great, great, uh, great Western Malting, and he said, well, you know, all the flavors that we associate with malt biscuity, bready, toasty, all those things come from the kilning process. And so without kilning it, malt will be very different tasting. And I said, well, what do you think it would be like? And, you know, most maltsters uh, taste their product as they go along. Yeah. And he said, you know, I, I've never done that, but my guess would be that it'd be, you know, quite grassy, you know, clover, hay, those sorts of, you know, flavors and aroma. And so a friend of mine grows wheat malt at home. I got some from him. I malted it. I air-dried it. Uh, it certainly didn't get as dry as kilned malt, so it won't store as well. You have to use it right away. And it certainly had a lot of the flavors that he talked about and none of the biscuity flavors, no roasty, biscuity, uh, bready flavors. And so the things we think of today like didn't exist in this early... Right. Yeah. So if they were kilning their malt, they would have had to do it over some sort of heat source where they would have had to go harvest probably wood themselves and do it. And that's a lot of extra labor. So this, you know, air drying of malt, which was done both in Germany and in Belgium, uh, there's records of it, it was probably how these white beers were made with, with this air dried malt. So the flavors that we even associate with beer would be quite different. And one of the things that the air drying does, I mean, you make a very light-colored, hazy, white beer. Yeah. And that's why they're called white beers. Um, so the process is very easy to do. I did it at home, and if I can do it at home, anybody can do it at home. That's uh, the master brewer, but yeah. <laughs> uh, well, come on, I'm not a malter. I'm not a malter. <laughs> I, that was the first time I'd ever tried malting at home. And is it that was, true? Yeah, it was quite fun. Uh, very, you know, and it was so easy to do. And you, now you can order online all kinds of crazy uh, wheat malt or barley malt from wherever. You know, there's all kinds of people doing uh, micro you know, farming of this stuff. And there are hundreds of varieties, or at least dozens, maybe not hundreds, but dozens. So you can get a lot of interesting flavors yeah. and malt them right at home yourself. And uh, How fun. did you set that up at home? I did, I did it in a pan. Okay. You know, I mean, I got a bucket. You put the malt in. You put water on top of it. Yeah. Uh, you let it go for, I don't remember how many hours, something like eight hours. <clears throat> so you start in the morning, and then it's like a crock pot kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, except for you don't heat it. 
you know, so it soaks up the water and you I just mean like time-wise, like it's a a slow burn kind of, yeah, or slow process, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it takes a couple days, so you drain it and then refill it up and, you know, keep the, at some point you drain off most of the water, keep the malt, you know, moist until it gets to a certain degree of, you know, sprouting, Um, and I don't recall exactly where that is, but it find it online yeah and i even talk about it some in the book <laughs> um i go through the whole process in the book and when it gets to a certain stage you quit putting water on it it starts to dry out and if it's you know you can't really do this in the winter where if it's wet because it doesn't dry out enough and then it'll mold um, but you certainly can do it in the summer and they would assist by putting it out in a windy area or putting it in, in the attic of a house you know uh, so it would be hotter up there. Yeah. And they'd dry their malt, you know, in, in the attic or out in an open area uh, on the dirt, you know, the compacted dirt. And, and they'd shovel up and brew with it. And they'd, you know, they'd brew into a, a wooden vessel using stalks of barley or hay yeah. as a bed to louder through. And they'd put, often for Goza, they used uh, spruce branches and twigs. So... It would pick up some flavor from that. and Interesting. Okay. Then they would, you know, run it into a, you know, they, they would do a partigal system. So mm-hmm. they would, you know, take the first runnings and make what they called the best Krug uh, or the best, you know, most expensive beer. And then they would uh, do a second and a third and a fourth and sometimes a fifth runnings, you know, where they just put more hot water on top of it. And they would often take the second, third, or fourth, and blend them together later after fermentation to make a more common beer. And then for the last version, they would make a table beer, low alcohol beer. Uh, it was also called family beer sometimes. And, you know, you couldn't drink water 800 years ago. Of course. So, you know, it's filled with things that will kill you. Well, I mean, you could, but it'd kill you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, if you lived on some, you were upstream pristine mountain maybe, but if there was anything in between you and in that water, even a forest, with deer running through it, you didn't want to drink it. Yeah. So people didn't drink water. They drank this this light table beer or beer or the heavy brown beer and subsequently got nothing done during the day. Um, so we don't have a very good description of Goza from that time because uh, you got to remember that the printing press didn't get invented until 1400. Sure. So... You know, in the 11 and 1200s, uh, very few notes were taken, and usually they were taxation notes. And so we do have uh, Goza being mentioned uh, from the town of Goslar, where the Goza River runs through it, uh, in about, I think it's mid-1200s. And so we know that the beer is at least that old. And you have to assume that if there was a German village of any size anywhere, they were making beer. And... and the Goza beer is named after the Goza River. And so certainly, as soon as people settled in Goza, which was, you know, 850, 900, they started making beer. So there was Goza beer. Now, what was that beer like? We have no idea. Well, and, and that's what I wanted to, because I, I want to talk about what Goza is today. But when you say that we don't know what it was back then, and you're talking about this uh, Luftmalt, and then you're talking about tax records, I, I, I'm really curious about how you approached the research of this beer 
because you know, there, there's been books written about IPA that are definitive, that, that sort of debunk a, a lot of the, the history that's been done or a lot of the, the misinformation that's been out there in the past. And uh, same thing with stouts and same thing with porters and, and, and some of these others. Um, and it really comes with, with meticulous research. And so I'm wondering how you approached the research into Goza uh, for this book. Are you saying I just made all that up? No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, it's what I do on a daily basis, but, you know, it's, uh, I can get away with it because I'm fake news, but yeah. Well, the research was difficult, and the research was difficult for a whole bunch of reasons. One, uh, most of what's written, you know, about German beers is, is in German. And uh, back in the day, it was in Old German, which I have a hard time reading at all, much less reading and then <laughs> translating. And the stuff that's even further back, uh, which... You didn't get an intern? Like that's well, I actually got a lot of help from this guy named Benedict. Awesome dude. I met him online. He has a, a website. He's part of the Milk the Funk crew. Oh, I, yeah. I what a that. great group. Yeah. Love those guys. Love that website. Um, shout out, Milk the Funk. Yeah. Um, Thanks for your support, guys. Yeah. Uh, and if, if anybody listened to this, if you haven't heard of Milk the Funk and you have any interest in sour beers at all, run to your computer immediately. Look it up. It's just awesome. Oh, yeah. Um, but this guy, Benedict, he was going to be in Berlin when I landed in Berlin to do my research. And we you know, got together, and he's a super nice guy, and he translated some stuff for me. And he had a bunch of stuff I'd never you know, seen, and he sent that to me. And then he said, here's an interesting problem. I'm looking at a book now, and he would go to the, the German libraries and look through things. He says, I'm looking at a book now, and it's maybe in some German, but a lot of it's in Latin. And I don't read Latin. And... You know, it, back eight, nine hundred years ago, Latin was the... That, that was the language. That was the language used for the, any kind for, of record writing, keeping. Yeah. yeah. So he had to get his girlfriend uh, to decipher some of it because she speaks some Latin. And, you know, so the research was triply difficult because it's hard to find. Yeah. It's in, not in English. Right. It's in sometimes in not even in German. Yeah. And, you know... It, it, these are things you wouldn't stumble across. If it hadn't been for Benedict going out and doing a lot of this research, uh, I don't think the book would be as thoroughly researched or interesting. Uh, there is Google Books, which they're trying to put every book on the planet. Yeah, they've run into some issues with that. But yeah, but yeah. at least it's out there. Yeah, and so I, that was a great help. I could at least look up uh, titles and you know look up some pages and then do my bad German translations. <laughs> uh so, yeah, the research for this book was very difficult. Had you studied way. German before this? No, but I've been to Germany a bunch of times. I can <laughs> noodle about and order a beer anyway. Okay. Well, sure, yeah. Get a room. Do so so it's good enough to write a book. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, I, I got a lot of help from a lot of it's people. It's easy, kids. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Christy Switzer did a lot of the translating as well. She speaks German. Yeah, your publisher and editor at Brewer's Publications, who's just one of the best in the biz, if, if not the best. Yeah, it's certainly the best in the beer business. Oh, uh, handstand. And she's awesome. She was great help, uh, super encouraging. It was great working with her. Um, so I got, I got translations from a lot of different sources. Randy Mosher also did some for me. Uh, was helpful. Uh, Ron Pat Pattinson, yeah, nice guy, uh, helped me out a lot. Great historian as well. Yes, and he has written a gazillion books on beer. Um, so I got a lot of help from a lot of people. I certainly didn't do it on my own in any way. I just mostly collected things and kind of put them together. And you know, Ron and Benedict had websites that they they had you know talked about Goza and you know other white beers that were out there. 
And so the research, you know, I had to fly to Germany and uh, go figure out some things myself. Uh, you know, the, over and over again, you read that Goza is named after the Goza River, which flows through the town of Goslar. Right. So I want to ask you about this, because when I think of Goza today, uh, it, it, so much of it has to do with uh, the water. And I'm thinking of, oh, it's probably brackish, at least. Like, there, there's a little bit of salt content to it or, or, or something. Um, because wherever you go in Germany, there are regional beers, be it the Berliner yeah. Weiss, be it the Dunkelweiss, and be it the Altbier, be it, you know, wh- wh- whatever it is. And I had always just in the back of my mind, not knowing much about anything, had figured like, oh, like they had access to salt water, which in retrospect now is kind of like, I should look at a map and realize that that's, that, that's not the case. Where does salt come in to well, Goza? Like, does it come from the river? Again, we're talking about something that happened 1,800 years ago, so we can't mm-hmm. be certain about what, what's what. Right. But I did... But uh, what do you believe? Well... I postulate, and I believe this to be true, that the Goza River was never salty. Uh, it may have been miner- more minerally than it is now, but it's even not very minerally today. So, and when you say minerally, like, you're talking like Burton-upon-Trent, like it has yeah, some of that going? Yeah. Okay. It, you know, so Goslar sprung up because they found uh, metal ore in the mountain nearby, mm-hmm. and it became an enormous uh, mining town. Uh, the mine was enormous, not the town. Uh, and, you know, the mine now is a World Heritage Site, which is kind of cool. And at first, I think some people wrote and said and thought that, you know, the minerals that they were mining were ending up in the river. But that certainly is not true. The Goso, Goso River is not very long. It doesn't go through a whole lot of mining. Most of the tailings went into the other river that runs through that town. Um, and eventually... Yeah, I, I went to Goslar and I hiked out of town. Yeah. Uh, Benedict said, you know, you need to try this because he did it and he didn't think the water was salty. And so I hiked out of town and tasted the water and he's right, it was not salty. How far out of town did you go? Yeah, mile-ish. Okay. You know. So uh, it's a stroll, it's not a hike, like, let's yeah, be honest. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I had to, I had to get off-road a bit. So I mean, for me, like, I don't exercise, so I'm like, God, a mile, that's, that's terrible, yeah. It is maybe a little bit more. I mean, that's outside of town, so I was staying in the I don't know. I've, town. I've talked to some home brewers who, like, go into the mountains here in Colorado with empty jugs, and they fi- they know, like, where springs are in the mountains, and they'll hike in six miles uh, with empty jugs and fill them and then carry them back out for their homebrew. I'm like, that is, that's commitment. Like, a mile mm-hmm. outside of town is sort of like, oh, let's get the horses or, like, let's get the Chevy and, yeah. Yeah. I, the it Volvo. Wasn't, it was yeah. not hard. Okay. Um, but... I did have to get off-road some, but so what's odd about the Goza River today is if you go to Goslar, there are little streets uh, called Ander Goza, which means on the Goza, and Goza Strasse, Goza Street. Um, and as you wander around town, you're like, I don't get it. How can you have a street named on the Goza when there is no Goza River? <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, and I went to the museum and I talked to a lot of people and they all had no idea what I was talking about. Um, but eventually, the town has a website, which is very informative. Uh, and the town talks about the history. And I found out through, you know, noodling around in their, their website that the Goza River, early on, probably around 1,000, maybe even 950, when they started to settle the town, they decided the Goza River would be the river they used to supply fresh water for baking and brewing and, you know, whatever. Uh, and the average duck, I think I'm 
pronouncing that incorrectly, but whatever. The other I'm river. Not even going to attempt. Yeah. The other river in town was going to be used for everything going out of the town, all the wastewater. So huh. mining, processing water, yeah. you know, uh, toilets, everything, all of that. So they eventually started to cover the Goza so people couldn't throw their trash into it or poop in it or whatever. And they eventually built a water system, which they actually used from, you know, whenever they built it, like 1200, up until the 1970s. Wow. Yeah. And they originally built it out of hollowed out logs Uh and things. So the Goza River has been kind of re-maneuvered around. And, you know, the the street under Goza is, is actually on the Gozics, like literally. It's, you know, it's underneath that street. So... Uh, that's really cool. Back to the salt, though. Yeah, that's, yeah. So, since the water is not saline in any way, the big question is, yeah, why, why is salt a part of Goza? And during, in that area, the Haras Mountain area, there, not too far away, is some substantial salt mining. And where salt may have been a commodity in other parts of Europe, in that part of Europe, with a mine that close by, it was not the commodity it was in some places. It was much more available, easier to access, and cheaper. Okay. So, I've seen people, uh, particularly up in the northwest, you know, Wyoming, put salt in their beer, their lagers. Yeah. Give it a little more fullness, a little I've more body. I've seen it in the Dakotas, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I have to assume that that's what happened, that, you know, the Goza brewers thought, well, we have this cheap commodity, and we know it, the effect it has on beer, you know, and gives it some fullness, and so they put a little bit in. And when nearby towns, as Goza became more and more popular and was get, gaining accolades, um, other towns started to make Goza. And I think they just copied them and put some salt in there. And as it spread out, I think each time another brewery opened and started making their own Goza, they emulated that and put a little salt in there. And I think the same is probably true with... Uh, the spices that get used in it, um, and that that's a whole other discussion uh, that has to do with the gruit that was used in brown beers, mm-hmm. and I, I would have to guess that there was, since there was an edict that said you had to use gruit in every beer, because that's how the king uh, made his money, or some of it, uh, that even Goza at some point had some sort of spice mix in it, and over time, other spices got left out and coriander remained. Uh, I think that was probably accelerated when they started using hops. And hops weren't used in beer a thousand years ago. Um, and hops came into use in different places at different times over, you know, hundreds of years. Uh, that it looks like there's, a, you know, 50 or 150 year increments where you see it popping up. But one of the interesting things that I found out in my research is that, you know, there are all kinds of reasons like... Um, What's the guy that wrote the sacred herb book? Bueller? Bueller? Stephen? Bueller? Anybody? Bueller. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. But he, he talks about, you know, hops in his book and postulates that it was done by the church because it made you sleepy and tired and that the gruit mixes were aphrodisiac herbs that made you wild and crazy and uh, having lots of sex. And I found... Uh, I found no evidence that the Gruet hops were intoxicating 
uh, or aphrodisiac in any way. I don't know. If that was true, I'd say, like, let's make Gruet again. Like, it's, well, yeah. we can make Gruet again. Those, those herbs are out there. And, you know, if they were really that potent, people would be doing them right yeah, now. In fact, true. we wouldn't be at the GABF. We'd be at the, you know, Great Gruet Festival or something. <laughs> and we'd all be some Bacchanalian orgy over in the all corner. All in our lambskins yeah. and the, yeah, that'd be a, that, yeah. It's not uh, a, this is not a pretty picture we're painting. No. Um, all right. So you, you've opened up about nine uh, veins that I want to mine at this point, but okay. I, 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 yeah. We can't go away until we talk about the hops a little bit before okay. I forget. Yeah. So one of the things that I discovered is that when hops started being used, they are such a good preservative compared to alcohol or <laughs> other Gruet herbs that brewers immediately, like, within a few months, I believe, certainly a few years, realized that instead of making an 8% brown beer with Gruet, they could make a beer half that strength, use half the amount of malt, and still get the same volume of beer. And there are even people who you know, talk about this in, in historical records and say, well, you know, I'm reducing my, my recipe, my malt bill, by two-thirds, and I'm just going to make hop beer. So that's, I think, the main reason that hops became so popular is that the beer, you could use, you know, a third, two-thirds the malt or even half the malt for the same volume of beer, make a decent intoxicating beer, and it wasn't going to put people in stupors, and you didn't have to buy the Gruet, and you didn't have to buy that much malt. Yeah. So uh, it's a great preservative, and you get to use less malt. Uh, That's why hops became dominant. One of the things that I'm curious about, though, uh, back when I was the editor at All About Beer, uh, Evan Rail did a story on Berliner Weiss for us, where uh, he talked about how it had almost died. And you talk to Tim Webb, uh, who's written many great books on Belgian beer, and he talks about how Lambic uh, almost died, um, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and Goose almost died uh, at, at some point. So many of these beers that existed back in hundreds of years ago that were native to and specific to a certain region uh, have fortunately been pulled back from the brink of completely going uh, at, you know, on, yes. off the rails. And yeah. uh, Fred Eckhart is responsible, uh, God rest his soul, for uh, bringing Adam beer back into the in, in, into the fold as well, which mm-hmm. is now a category that's judged here at GABF as well. Um, did Goza ever get close to that happening? Goza actually completely died off multiple times. Really? Yeah. and Not it, just once? No, not just once. I cover this all in the book, so you can yeah. go out and at least buy Everybody should go buy the book. I'm just teeing you up. But, oh, like, everybody you. should go yeah. buy the book. Right yeah. now. Run to your computer. It's on Amazon. It's, uh, yeah, where fine books are sold. And uh, I'm only asking for one million copies sold. That's all I want. <laughs> okay, maybe 100,000 would be good. Okay, 1,000 maybe? Yeah. <laughs> So hundred, please, yeah, yeah take somebody, my way, yeah, uh, yeah, buy my book. <laughs> Where were we? I, listen, as two writers sitting at a table together, like we could, we could really out desperate each other at yeah. this point uh, when it comes to selling books. But yeah. you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm teeing you up because I want people to go buy the book. So don't give everything away, but just give just a little taste, like just, uh, you know, the well, first taste is free. Okay, yeah. So I mean, there, it has died out many times, and you know, it actually died out in Goslar before it died out. You know, in Leipzig, so it, well, had, sure. it yeah. had migrated down to Leipzig, and uh, you know, and a whole bunch of reasons, which you can read about in the book. Yes, uh, which you should. Are outlined. Pause the podcast. Go to your computer. Buy the book. Unpause the podcast. Uh, Welcome back. Yeah, Fal is here talking about uh, Goza. Yeah. So, you missed nothing. <laughs> you 
while you were there away, was no break. we didn't talk about it. There was it no break, yeah. It's now time for the CD listeners <laughs> to take a pause. So, Traffic and weather next. This is what happens when you drink and podcast yeah, at the same time. It's, it's very dangerous. my entire life. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Goza died out several times. Um, my favorite story of Goza dying out is, you know, during it, it was huge in some places. It was so big that actually in Hamburg, they put a tax, a special tax on imported beer to keep Goza from selling as much as it was selling in Hamburg. Really? Okay. Yeah. And then later in Leipzig, it became so big, there were something like 85 Goza taverns. And it was like the, it was the Leipzig thing. There are postcards and, you know, you could write your, you know, sell them in the gift shops, you write your parents from some Goza tavern. And when you're talking about taverns, is this just where it was served or it was also where it was made and served? Well, that's a complicated question. You have to read the book. Yeah. Um, mostly where it was served, but uh, Goza has gone through a lot of permutations. So uh, at some point they would do the, you know, quote, brewing, unquote, at some spot, and then immediately put it into giant wooden casks and ship it to the uh, the places where it was going to be served, the taverns, and they would finish it off in the barrels and, and do the packaging. So not unlike cask ale or not uh, real ale back in the day, or not unlike even some of the taverns that exist today, uh, where lager is being sent out with specific lagering tanks uh, where the beer finishes at. Okay. Yeah, somewhat like that, except for much more sour. <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. But, you know, Goza had its heyday, and then around the turn of the last century, 1900s, uh, it started to wane, and lager beers were taken over, and it kind of died out, you know, and then the World War II, one and two were not kind to Germany or, or Goza, and after World War II, the communists took over uh, that part of Germany, and they were even less kind to Goza. They were not interested in any sort of uh, cultural identity, and Saxony really had its own cultural identity, and so to kind of put the squeeze on that, they kind of actively worked at wiping out uh, a lot of things, and Goza was one of them. And the last keg of Goza rolled out in the 50s, and that was it. No more Goza. And then this guy, uh, uh-oh, mind blank, Luthar Goldham. Okay. Lothar Goldham. Yeah. Great name, Lothar. Uh, he thought, you know what? I was a restaurateur. I ran a hotel before the communists showed up. And now I'm a bookbinder, and I don't like bookbinding, and I want to open a I want to open a place. So he went to the Onabedenkin, which is the the oldest Goza tavern, and it had since shut down as a tavern, and it had been used for many different things under the communists. And he said, "I this is where I'm going to do it. I'm going to open a Goza tavern, and you know restore Leipzig's glory." And it was kind of a crazy dream that this guy had, and he had been planning this for a while, so he'd gotten involved with politics, and he went to, you know, whoever is in charge of those sorts of projects and said, this is what I want to do. And they said, well, we'll support you, but you have to put in 3,000 hours of your own time restoring the place. And so he logged 3,000 hours rebuilding it, redoing the beer garden, you know, refinishing like the wood. an arbitrary number, but yeah. Yeah, I, I know. Um... Yeah, maybe it is, because, you know, again, my translating from German, maybe it's 30 hours. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, was doing this on his own time with his own money while he was still being, you know, a bookbinder. And he would go out to flea markets, and he ran into this other gentleman, uh, Hartmut Hennebach, and they, you know, 
Hartmut was selling some of these, you know, paraphernalia things, and uh, that he was going to, you know, Goldhum was going to buy and put in his tavern. Yeah. And there were some Goza things there, and they got to talking about history of Leipzig, and they became partners. And they reopened this place, and it was wildly popular. And they, you know, Lothar went out and talked to old brewers and talked to old Goza drinkers and found as many recipes as he could. And he took all of this information and went to a small brewery and said, listen, I want you to make this beer for me. And they said yes, and they did, and they started making Goza again. And really, he single-handedly... From the traditional recipes, yeah. Yeah, what they could find. Um, and he single-handedly, you know, rescued Goza. And when he passed away, Hennebach continued to run the Onabedankin until he passed away. And the Onabedankin's still there, awesome. They, and they just recently, in the last couple of years, bought their own small brewery, and now they're making Goza on-site. So That's they're a really little... Cool. They're a little brew pub. But, it, it, you know, this is just another great example of committed people to a specific cause furthering beer culture. I mean, we've seen yeah. Pierre Sellis, we've seen yeah. uh, Jack McAuliffe, we've seen all of these people who have come and revived something that had long been dead that is now sort of uh, a cultural phenomenon, mm -hmm. uh, uh, if you were. And that leads me to, to this next question of... If you had to give the elevator pitch of what Goza is today, how do you explain to, to you know, so 13% of uh, beer drinkers in the U.S. Uh, follow craft, the other 87% uh, don't. So if you're talking to somebody who's in that 87%, and I never heard of Goza before, it's spelled like goes, uh, you know, uh, how, how do you explain where we are in modern terms. Well, the elevator pitch, what, I got three minutes or four? <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, it's the tallest building in Denver, so you got about 45 seconds. Okay, yeah. so it's the oldest beer style <laughs> in the world, and it's, it's a sour, slightly saline wheat beer, and it's made with about 50% wheat, 50% barley, and it is super drinkable, very thirst-quenching. You're going to love it, and it's a perfect palate to put other things onto, so you can add fruit or spices or herbs, it's just a very diverse kind of beer, and everybody loves it. Men love it. Women love it. Small children love it. There's an article that's running in Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, which uh, everybody should also go to that website and subscribe to the magazine as well, uh, where I talk to you about brewing with salt. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was sort of struck by is that there are so many different salts that are out there um, these days. And, and which do you, what kind of salt works best in your mind for brewing a goza. Well, I cover all of this in the book. I know you do. So, um, but again, I'm just I'm yeah. just asking for like just just so, a little bit. Like everybody, everybody's already stopped and paused and went and bought the book, okay. and like this is the spoiler afterwards. Yeah. So salt. There are a lot of salts out there, <laughs> and I did a bunch of research. I tried to do a lot of research on everything, even things that I, I thought. If were it'll not. make you feel better, I'll just start giving away recipes from the old book as well, just so oh, that yeah. people don't have to go and buy it. So you're not alone in this whole thing. No, no. Everybody, you know. I always say there are no secrets in brewing, uh, at least from my side. So if anybody ever needs any you know, advice or help or a recipe, they feel free to email me. But um, salt, you know, you can spend a lot of money on salt. You can, mm -hmm. you know, the pink Himalayan salt is just the tip of the iceberg. They got this blue salt that comes out of somewhere in the Middle East from this lake. Crazy expensive. My favorite salt 
during my research was black Hawaiian black salt. Yeah. Yeah. Now that, you can buy it in the airport. You, really? Yeah, I'm guessing. It, it like for out, like $50, like a quarter pound or something. Yeah. yeah. And this, this salt, if you go to uh, Wikipedia, which is a website I found, Wikipedia talks about how black salt is sacred black salt, and it actually will absorb evil spirits. So, <laughs> hey, it's on Wikipedia. It's got to be true. And I thought, this is great. I can make a beer that absorbs by the evil way, spirits. By the way, just the, the meticulous research you did in this book, going to websites like Wikipedia uh, to debunk stuff is, uh, you know, thank you. Well, uh, on behalf of all drinkers of this style. I, I, Thanks, I went where it took me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's weird, right? You just fell down that internet rabbit hole. All right. Well, it's so, so it wards off bad spirits. Yeah. yeah, it wards off bad spirits. But then I thought, when it, it, it until absorbs, the morning, it doesn't, it doesn't ward them off. It absorbs bad spirit. <laughs> so I thought maybe that's not the best thing to put in your beer. A so it's like a bacon, absorbs. egg, and cheese in the morning. Then yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. So uh, I, I, I recommend that you don't use Hawaiian black salt. And also, it turns out that Hawaiian black salt isn't from Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, they've never made it in no. Hawaii. It's made in California somewhere, as far as anybody can tell. Uh, the Hawaiians don't know what it is. <laughs> what a scam. Yeah. yeah. There is Hawaiian red salt, which, of course, is the best salt on the planet. You know, I grew up in Hawaii, so I, I, I'm obligated to, to say that. Sure. Um, I mean, I grew up on the Jersey Shore, so I'm going to steer you towards saltwater taffy, but, uh, you know, from Atlantic City. But, yeah, it doesn't mean either of us are right. Yeah. <laughs> but, honestly... And either I, way, we're going to get a disease from consuming too much. Yeah. I, I did, I, again, I tried to do good research, and I, uh, there's a great article in Cook's Illustrated uh, that talks about salt and the differences in you know how whether it's worth it spending your money on on expensive salt, and pretty much everybody agrees, with, with a very few exceptions. Salt is salt is salt. Now, if you're sprinkling salt on a dish, maybe you will get some of the nuances in your pink Himalayan salt or your azure blue salt or you know your Hawaiian red salt. But if you're using it in cooking or brewing, you're talking the mineral content of these things is less than one percent. So it's going to be diluted, and it's going to disappear, and you're never going to see it again. So, and you're not, no way you're going to taste it. So if you're using any kind of salt in brewing or cooking, your best option is non-iodized sea salt. Okay. Of your cheapest, the cheapest one you can get. And where do you find that it's best in adding into a goza recipe? Well, uh, that also took a kind of weird turn. Uh, we make a lot of goza at Anderson Valley, and uh, we use a lot of salt, and we do it. Uh, post-fermentation in the fermenter when it's not cold yet but it's not warm anymore so the, the beer has not been actively chilled but it's cooled on its own some so and that turns out that that's probably your best bet because salt is sodium chloride and when you dissolve it the chloride ions uh, don't like stainless yeah. and it's already the more acid uh, a solution is the more degrading the chlorine will do and the hotter it is, the more degrading the chlorine can be. So if you're putting your salt into the kettle, for example, on a kettle-soured beer, you're, you're doing the worst possible thing you can for your stainless. You're subjecting it to chlorine, uh, you know, chloride, and you're doing it under a acidic environment that's hot. Yeah. And you're running through your heat exchanger, which is even worse because that metal's really thin on purpose. And you're, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get damage to your stainless. It's going to start eating away. At it. Yeah. Which is not something that people think about because if, no. if you get real stainless, like it's well, that, that'll survive that that and the cockroaches will survive uh, uh, the next uh, you know nuclear war. But yeah, it, and it turns out stainless is not stainless. Stainless is not all that sturdy or hardy. 
Um, and there are a whole bunch of different kinds of stainless. In brewing, we mostly use 304. And yeah. now, now we can get the, the engineers to geek out a bit. Uh, really, if you're going to do this, if you're planning on use, making a lot of gozes or you know, adding it on the hot side, you usually should upgrade to 316 and probably 316T with the extra titanium. And that you know, will give you a longer uh, shelf life for your stainless. But I'll give you an example. When I started Anderson Valley Brewing Company in the year 2000, uh, they had a 30-barrel kettle, which had been, they had bought from someone else. It might have been 30 or 40 years old. And its stainless was so stressed from being heating and cooled and heating and cooled and heating and cooled that it began to have stress fractures that uh, we couldn't weld because the stainless had lost most of its integrity. Wow. So it would, as we, you know, we put the welding torch to it and it would just vaporize. It just disappear. And huh. you couldn't, you know, you couldn't run a bead down it. And so stainless does have a shelf life. It does wear out and it doesn't like salt and it doesn't like low pH hot salt. So as a brewery who, and Anderson Valley has transitioned in the last couple of years. I mean, I, you guys have been around for, for forever and uh, making great beers of, of different styles. But if, if somebody says, who's the preeminent Goza brewer in the country, I, I, I think it'd be foolish not to point to, to what you guys are doing, at least uh, you know here in the, in, in the U.S. So what does that do for your longevity and your equipment. Like you have to now think about this. Okay, we're going to make X many barrels of, of Goza this year. It's going to have uh, this amount of stress, even if it's on your fermenters, even if it's on, you know, you figured it out where it's not going to necessarily kill your brew house, um, yeah. but it will have an impact on your overall brewing system. Yeah. Um, we've, you know, I, I've thought about this and I penciled it out and uh, it turns out that I'll be retired by the time that happens. <laughs> so, so somebody else's problem. Somebody else's yeah. problem. No, uh, we have talked about it, and I've, I've gotten our stainless guy who makes our tanks uh, to quote me using 316 on the interior of the fermenters. And you can use 304 you know, on the rest of it. And the 316 is a little more expensive. I think it's worth it if, if we get a new fermenter that we're gonna, we know we're going to be doing a lot of gozes in. I would probably, I would probably spend that extra money. Um, most of our tanks get a two-week you know, uh, turn. So we're not really, you know, working them as hard as some places. We got a lot of fermenters. And so I really do think probably it'll be 20 or maybe even 30 years before we start to see any of the effects of this. But for you guys, but, yeah. but smaller brewers who are doing these styles should be aware that it can degrade their system. Yeah, if I was, if I was doing this, I certainly wouldn't be putting salt on the hot side. Um, our concern was that it would, it would have some negative effect on the yeast downstream on fermentation, which the, the acid already does have some negative effects. Um, but my concern would be the heat exchanger mostly because that metal is very thin mm-hmm. and it's something that you depend on so completely and to get a pinhole leak in your heat exchanger could have you know disastrous effects and it could be weeks or even months before you discovered it and then you'd be out of business. I mean, you'd have had, if you got an infection that way, it could go on for several weeks before you noticed it and you may have produced, you know, 20, 30, 40 more batches of beer. In the early days, you talked about the variety of spices that are used and these days uh, it seems like when you're making goza that anything is on the table, um, fruit-wise especially, uh, is where the style seems to really have hit its stride a little bit. 
where do you see the evolution of the style? Where do you where do you see us going? You know, from this point in 2018, uh, you know, beyond because it, it's it's hard to imagine that uh, Goza is going to disappear like it did um, anytime soon. And so, but it's also the natural inclination of brewers to sort of push the envelope. And you, at sort of the forefront of this, and as a, a mindfulness of of, of where the style came from, where do we go from here? Well, I, you know, that's a good question, hard to say. And, you know, if someone had told me that Goza would be a thing 10 years ago, I'd have said, no, you're crazy. Even if you told me five <laughs> years ago, I'd have said, really? Really? Yeah. You think that a sour, salty German wheat beer is going to be the new thing? I was wrong. Uh, my boss saw this. He had vision. He, when we first made a Goza, I'd never even heard of a Goza five years ago. Um, Actually, is it really that short a period of time that you guys have been making them? Yeah, it, it it's stunning that the and success. You got a book deal out of it too, which is pretty oh, cool. But yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. Five years ago, I really I, I had never heard of Goza, and most people hadn't either. And Randy Mosier, uh, who is you know just a fountain of knowledge. Yeah, he talked about making Gozas back at a, a homebrew U thing that was put on up in Seattle in the mid '90s. And, you know, nobody paid attention because it was so outlandish uh, of a thought. We were trying to figure out how to make an IPA back then. And <laughs> right. And a, clear, and a clear one at that, yeah. Right. And a bright one. And, well, the, that's <laughs> where that's gotten us. <laughs> Stay tuned for part two, oh, folks. Yeah. Exactly. Hazy goes <laughs> Is that in the table? Is no, that uh, No. No. There's nothing. No. No hazy. Uh, I so get, that's not part of the evolution of the style. You know, who knows what's going to happen. I have seen the craziest gozas that you can possibly imagine already. I was in Berlin. A guy made a pickle goza, which, you know, was actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, With just the spices or just, like, actually throwing in, like, cukes? Well, I think he, yeah, he put, definitely put cucumber in there. All right. And then he put, you know, some of the pickle spices and, you know, used pickling salt. <laughs> it was a lot saltier than I would have made it, but yeah. it was interesting. And I've had ones that... You know, I've had an 11% Goza, which I don't, you know, it's not really a Goza at that point. It's What's the sweet spot for ABV? Probably about, you know, four, you know, 3.8 to 4.8, 5 yeah. maybe. So when you get higher than that and certainly triple that, yeah, it starts yeah. to, yeah. I mean, it's the whole it's the whole thing of how you refine things. So is a, is a double or a triple IPA uh, just a hoppy barley wine? You know, I yeah. mean, I, I don't know. So uh, people making a double Goza, it's just now you're doing a kettle soured, salty super strong beer and the one that I had that was very strong was very good but I wouldn't have called it a goza it had some crazy fruit in it and didn't have much salt and it was like really alcoholic but really tasty so I think you can do a lot of things and I think you know something that will become people will talk about more is kettle sour versus uh, wood souring and a lot of people have been poo-pooing the kettle souring um uh, there's, there's two different kinds of things. It's like, you know, a pickup truck and a race car. Yeah. You know, they're just not the same. You don't want to drive them the same. They both have a similar function. But, you know, kettle souring is a great way for folks who want to make a clean, bright, acidic beer uh, in a very short amount of time. And you're not going to get the complexity uh, that you would get out of wood aging, uh, you know, wood souring a beer. Um, and so in some styles, that's good. In some styles, it's not. I wouldn't say that, you know, you would make a kettle soured beer and then try and pass it off by, you know, running through wood chips or something. That would not be cool. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure that everybody always wants to drink a super ponderous, you know, 
wood-aged beer with funk and brat and God knows what else going on in there. Right. I love those beers, but it's not what I want to drink all the time. And you can get a little more funk in your goza if you like. I was talking to Peter Booker last night, and he's not a big fan of the kettle soured flavor. Um, you know, and weird so, that a Belgian wouldn't be. But uh, yeah. Um, so you know, it's not for everybody, but I think it's certainly a, an interesting technique, and I think you're going to see it used more and more on other types of beers that aren't gozas. You know, you can have other beers that are made slightly salty. I mean, slightly sa- sa- sour without yeah. being saline. You know, and. We've already done some experiments making uh, sour beers that way. And, you know, mild success. Yeah. It's another tool in the toolbox. I wish I had so much more time with you because this is such a fascinating topic uh, on a style that so many people were aware of that you're correctly point out five years ago we weren't thinking about but is so much part of the zeitgeist these days that uh, uh, it's hard not to think about it and if if you haven't already uh, folks who are listening go out and please buy Fal Allen's new book uh, Goza Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era Um, Fal thanks for sitting down oh sure thank you for having me before I leave you um I've been asking everybody who's who's been on my version of this uh, this podcast of what is your hope for beer? Hmm. Boy, you know, I was talking to Charlie last night, Papazian, about about how strange things have gotten and how at least I could never have imagined any of this ever happening. Uh, when I started brewing 30 years ago, you know, all of this was so far-fetched. You, you know, the fact that we're over 10% of the, the beer market is 13 unbelievable. Now, yeah. 13. It's, it's just shocking, you know, and the, the evolution of the styles we've seen and the resurrection of a lot of these styles. I would hope that we continue to do research and find, you know, styles that have died away and resurrect them as best we can. And I think that's an exciting part of brewing. I am a little nervous um, about some trends and you know we're just going to say it the hazy beer frightens me a little bit and it's not that I don't like those beers I mean they're perfectly fine beers as they are but they you know when, when you when you are intentionally making your beer uh, less attractive in some ways I just I don't understand it and I, I fear that with that beer I, I can't imagine that having extra yeast and extra wheat in there isn't going to be hard on most people's stomach and that like Hefeweizen it's just not going to be a beer that that lasts so I hope we don't go too far into trendy things Um, although I'm sure somebody out there is going to say well you made Goza dude talk about (laughs) fruity trends that you made yeah Yeah. and I I get it I I think there's a lot of room for experimentation and uh, I think we can make a lot of great beers in a lot of different ways and you know I I just don't want to to fall into being alcoholic sodas and I think one of the trends that we're going to see it's just going to happen is marijuana beer oh yeah you know we, we've already it's seen it's unstoppable that. at this point yeah you know we made a friend of mine who will remain nameless for legal reasons made a terpene beer and we taste. I went down and tasted it at his place in San Francisco loved it went back home thought well he made one I can make one so we made one and everybody loved it. We served it at our pub. You know, we didn't make a lot. And so we sent, you know, since it was a success, the boss was like, well, let's do this. And I wrote off to the TTB to get label approval. They wrote back and said, absolutely not. Right. You can use no part of the marijuana plant in brewing. It's a Schedule One drug. 
And they, you know, they didn't say they would come and mess us up, but certainly, certainly reading between the lines. Oh, is, it's implied. Oh, yeah. And they're serious. And I get it. I see, I see their point. But I think that they're going to have to come around as marijuana gets pulled off of Schedule 1 eventually and put somewhere else. And things like CBD and terpenes, particularly terpenes, because they have no psychoactive effect no. at all. They're just flavorings. And other plants make terpenes. Uh, they don't make the same ones or in the same awesome way that marijuana does. But I suspect you're going to see terpene beer. I, I'm 100% with you. Yeah. And uh, then CBD. Yeah. And the brewers that are doing it right now with hemp and some of the other uh, uh, peripheral products as well are simply laying the groundwork for the day when it can be legal, and then they'll flood the market. Everybody, I, I think that there's a lot of brewers that are experimenting with it right now, mm-hmm. uh, hoping that one day uh, it becomes legal, and yeah. you'll flood the market with it. And I, I do think that there's a large part of the consumer base that will respond to it. Yeah, we, you know, when we made this one, we made a very small batch, it was very experimental. It took so little of these terpenes to make, have an impact. And the guy told me, you know, he, he couldn't mail them to me. I had to go down and pick them up. <laughs> right. And uh, we put it in, he's like, you know, this is just going to get stronger as time goes on. And I said, That's, no, you know, I, I know beer, this isn't going to happen. But certainly it got stronger pretty much every day after we put it in there to a point where I actually had to cut it with pale ale you know it was just too strong and this stuff costs a fortune but you know you don't need much I use probably twice as much as I should have yeah and we're talking about milligrams of this stuff in barrels of beer so you know it's a flavoring that I just I don't I just feel fairly positive that we're going to have to deal with it at some point well, I will bring you back for the April 20th show next year just for uh, thematic purposes. But uh, Fal Allen of Anderson Valley Brewing Company with his new book, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Everybody, please, please, please go out and buy it. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun, John. Thanks for everybody for listening. If you have questions for me, uh, guests you'd like to hear on the podcast, questions or topics you'd like addressed, you can reach out to me directly at John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at Beer and Brewing or you can uh, .com or you can join the conversation on Twitter. You should also go and visit beerandbrewing.com where you can learn how to be a better home brewer, learn from the pros, uh, find out what's happening in our exciting beer world right now. Um, and you can also subscribe to the magazine. Please, please, please subscribe to the magazine because uh, print is not dead. And much like Goza, uh, we wanted to have a rebirth uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but again, Fal, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks again for having me. And if anybody wants to send me an email, they're welcome to at Fallen at avbc.com happy to answer any questions talk about recipes do whatever no when you say fallen though like yeah. I, I feel like your Hawaiian accent is coming out a little bit like spell it out for us because people think that I founded Goose Island which is not true which is why I have to spell my last name yeah yeah it's fallen as F like you know Frank fallen over uh, F-A-L-L-E-N at avbc like Anderson Valley Brewing Company dot com or just go to the website. They got my, they got my uh, email there. Do it up. Buy his book. Foul, thanks again. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Cheers, Cheers everybody. This episode was brought to you by craftbeer.com, home of the most mouth-watering map in the world, the map of U.S. breweries. If you find yourself in a new city and want to sample the local flavors, or if you just want to marvel at the vast American beer landscape, visit craftbeer.com. 
This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.